Blessed is the one whose strength is in you, in whose heart are your ways. From the 84th Psalm, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I want to make just a subtle change in preaching style this Sunday, and I hope that you'll oblige me just this once at least, and that is uh, to preach on the psalm appointed for the day. The psalms provide endless room for contemplation of the mysteries of God. In the psalms is the church's earliest prayer book, and ancient Christians believed it had a wealth of Christological matter, not to mention that... uh, You know, the gospel reading for this morning quite jumps the gun on Epiphany, and I don't like that, so there it is. This psalm today, Psalm 84, is listed as a psalm of the sons of Korah. Korah's story is recounted in the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. Korah leads a rebellion against Moses, saying, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? This is something of an anti-clerical move, a rebellion against Moses and a rebellion against Aaron. These Levites see themselves as holy men that would do a much better job than Aaron and Moses. And they're also saying, why can't we all be priests? Moses' response is quite telling. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And to make a long story short, Korah and his co-conspirators are told to show up at the entrance of the tabernacle with incense and censers. And when they do, the Lord not only consumes them, but opens up a hole in the ground that effectively sucks Korah and his people straight into Sheol. The story is one of a warning to love the courts of the Lord more than yourself, to love the Lord's dwelling place more than status, more than authority, more than rank. Furthermore, it is a warning to consider it the greatest of possible honors to be near to the Lord, to serve him and to worship him. It is a reminder of the great danger of presumption in presenting yourself before the presence of the Lord. And this psalm takes this to heart, beginning, How lovely are your dwellings, O Lord God of hosts! My soul has a desire and longing to enter into the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh rejoice in the living God. So this psalm is something of a correction to the attitude of Korah, which, if we're honest about it, is in every one of us. One of the most pernicious sins is sitting in the church and looking only to be built up in the sight of others. Even worse, to sit in church with an anti-clerical attitude that goes something like this, I could have preached a much better sermon than he did. I'm sure you could. I'm sure that I could be a better priest. If only I was the rector of Christ church. And I'll just be very honest, that very well may be. But pride gets the best of us. I'll admit to you that I do much the same thing. I say, if I was the bishop, 
it wouldn't be that way. Of course, one of my friends says, it's not if you were the bishop, it's when you're the bishop, it won't be that way. Is it not enough to be near the Lord? This temptation is very much there to be exalted, to be needed. All of us desire to be priests before the Lord, very important. But it is a terrible burden. And I freely admit, I do not stand in awe of the nearness of the Lord. I need this psalm to correct my heart and my flesh. And that is precisely where the psalmist focuses. On the heart and the flesh, rejoicing in the living God as they should. Friends, we do not worship a dead God. If Christmas can remind us of anything, it is that we worship the living God who is God of the living, a God who has a heartbeat, a God who is very much alive. But often, Christian worship looks more like the priests of Baal trying to wake up a sleeping or dead God, or worse, a sleepy dead people coming into the presence of God merely to stay asleep without the desire to be made truly alive by his spirit. And so the psalmist writes of the sparrow and the swallow. The sparrow has found her a house and the swallow a place where she may lay her young. St. Augustine says that the sparrow corresponds to the heart or to the soul. And the swallow being one who lays her, her eggs and lays her young in this tabernacle of the Lord is the flesh being concerned with fleshly multiplication. With the heart, he says, we think upon God as if the sparrow flew to her home. With the flesh, we do good works. For the Christian who spends literally all of his or her time in the presence of the Lord, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in the flesh and in the heart, we can say that it is in this living tabernacle that the heart and soul of the Christian meet God, finding a true house a true temple, and in the flesh serving him, especially in others. But Augustine is not content to stop here. He must go further. He must go from preaching to meddling, especially in our affairs today. He asks, how many do good works without the church? This is a rhetorical question. You're supposed to respond, I don't know of any, or not that many. They bring forth fruit, but it has no home, and therefore it is quickly destroyed. There are also those, he says, who find a home in the church, but do not bring forth faithful offspring, fruit that abides, children who remain in the faith. Augustine is saying, if we want our good works to bring forth fruit that abides, we must do so with the church as our true home. And if we want to bring forth faithful children, we must do so out of the very heart of the church. But at the same time, if we want to remain faithful in heart and soul, the church must be our true home, and our home an extension of it. We must learn to think like Christians, pray like Christians, live like Christians, and teach children to do the same. And how can we do that if we do not think with the church, pray with the church, live with the church, all in the presence of the Lord Jesus? 
You see, the psalm is denouncing a kind of do-it-yourself, a kind of lone ranger faith, a do-it-yourself way of believing. The psalmist writes, Blessed are they who dwell in your house. They will always be praising you. And so this is actually not, at the end of the day, about a geographic place. Although it is also that. It is about where the soul dwells. What is the interior disposition of the soul? Is it to continually surrender to God, to continually praise him, to continually be aware of his presence, to continually pray and to continually seek out loving obedience? Or is it two lesser things? Consider that today we remember in the other reading for the gospel, the presentation of the Lord in the temple. We will do this again on the feast of the presentation in a month. I I love how the readings are laid out. It's almost as if nobody goes to church on the presentation or actual epiphany, which you all know better than that. But what's being said here? It's something like this, that at the end of every human life, or that the end of every human life is to live in the presence of God. To live in the presence of God. And since we find that difficult in this life, an offering must be made, a nod towards something greater. And it is there in the temple that the Holy Family encounters two holy people as they offer their child before the Lord who have been continually waiting for the renewed presence of the Lord there in the temple. Simeon has been waiting a long, long time and he is so overjoyed when he sees Jesus entering the temple that he takes this baby from his parents into his arms and says that he can die essentially with a smile on his face because he has seen the Lord's salvation and presence with his own eyes. I always find this a bit troubling, you know, if you walk into church and, uh, well, I found this being married to someone who didn't grow up in Texas, that she was, Ella was always kind of like, you took my baby straight from my arms without asking. It's disturbing what he does. And Anna, likewise, had lived in the temple and had worshipped day and night. And when Jesus enters the temple with his parents, she breaks out in thanksgiving, speaking of the Lord to all who were also waiting for redemption. These two had spent lifetimes in the temple, waiting for the renewed presence of the Lord. These two, Simeon and Anna, are images of what we might call life lived in the presence of God even when the presence of God seems far away. You know, we are always struggling with being somewhere else, somewhere else in our minds, somewhere else in our souls. When we're at home, we're at work, and when we're at work, we're at home. But the saints tell us that there is nothing like the present moment, right where you are now and right where you will be. At the very time you will be to realize the presence of God. We are Christians, those who are in Christ. As Paul writes in today's epistle, in him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And what is this inheritance but the very life of Jesus Christ who lives in the presence of the Father? For what other good could we hope? What other joy? Simeon and Anna show us this rejoicing, this thanksgiving, and this peace as they approach the renewed presence of God in his temple. They knew it because they had lived in it their whole lives. They had gone through the valley of misery because what greater misery can there be than to be cut off or even just to feel cut off from the presence of God? It is not just misery, it is death. But what happens here? The valley of misery is used for a well. It has filled with water. This is not only to say that the Lord can use misery for our salvation, can use this feeling of being bereft of his presence for our good, for our sanctification, but something even better. That when sin had destined us for death, when sin had destined us to be eternally separated from the presence of God, the new life of grace, the life of receiving strength from the Lord himself, was freely offered to us in baptismal waters, whereby we were healed, restored, and made partakers of the divine nature and life. This is what we gather together to do today, to participate in this Jesus who renews the presence of God in his people. See how this happens in the psalm. They will go from strength to strength, and the God of gods shall be seen by them in Zion. This Zion is not only a physical place in Jerusalem where Jesus himself appears, where he goes, but it is also in the Zion that is every one of us who rejoices in the presence of God. They will go from strength to strength, and the God of gods shall be seen by them in Zion. In other words, the one who has taken hold of the very grace of the presence of God, who has embraced his highways, or as one translation puts it, whose heart is set on pilgrimage, who has rejoiced in the living God, will go from strength to strength, from virtue to virtue, from lesser strength to the greater, from lesser virtue to the greater the greatest of which is love, and not just love, but love of the contemplative sort. Love perfected in the beholding of the vision of God. For Augustine, this is simply the virtue of loving contemplation, the highest form of prayer, something like loving God in purity of heart. As one of my favorite uh, TV characters says, uh, mornings are for coffee and contemplation. Probably contemplation more than coffee. Having come to the vision of God, the psalmist writes this, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Hearken, O God of Jacob. Behold, O God, our defender, and look upon the face of your anointed. 
What is going on here? The psalm is speaking not only of the people who have seen God, and by the way, this is what Christmas is all about, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, but of the Lord, of the Father, looking upon the face of his anointed. Who is this anointed? It is Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one. And by extension, it is his body, the church, anointed by the inward anointing of the Holy Spirit, the anointing that comes through the gifts of grace. Indeed, this is what happens today. Having come into the courts of the Lord, we not only enjoy the presence of the Lord, but we enjoy the anointing of his Holy Spirit with the Father looking at each one of us as he looks at his beloved Son. For that reason, the psalmist says humbly and not at all like Korah, one day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of ungodliness. In other words, give me the absolute worst job in the presence of God every time above living in ungodliness. Something like this. If I have to clean toilets in the presence of God, then let it be so. If I have to do dishes in the presence of God, then let it be so, as one great French saint had it. If I have to muck out horse stalls in the presence of God, well, let it be so. If I have to clean up septic tanks, then let it be so. As long as it's in the presence of God. And that is where I want to land the plane this morning, which is this. Beloved, what grace is there that you have not been given in Jesus Christ? What gift, what honor, what status, what good thing? What is there that is necessary for godliness of the deepest sort that God has not given in Jesus and given freely, lavishly, and gloriously at that. This very day, you are granted participation in the Son of God, in his divine life. Paul writes to the Ephesians today, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You might be sitting there this morning and wondering how you're going to make it through this year. You may be resolved that this year will be the best yet. I think we're all going to be disappointed in some way. That this will be the year that you finally stop with this sin or that, or that you finally stop with this judgment or that, or that you finally, finally get it together and do the very thing that you've been aspiring to do. That this will finally be the year where you embrace holiness. And I want to say, 
Simply this. Let go of all of that and simply embrace the presence of the Lord. Embrace living in his presence. Embrace the strength of Jesus. Let go of all of those resolutions. Let go of all of those good intentions and put your trust in Jesus. Let go of all of your resolutions and all of your good intentions, all of that striving, all of that ambition, and come into the courts of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.